you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com Goals24. That's Chime.com Goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by U.S. Bank. Small enough to care, big enough to make a difference. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Small business continues to be the backbone of the American economy, despite a brutal 2020 where over 400,000 small businesses failed in the first three months of the pandemic. Ron Busby, Representative Judy Chu, and Lisa Minza join Washington Post Live to explore the future of diversity in small business, the challenges minority-owned businesses often face in raising capital, and how government and the private sector can work to keep these critically important enterprises thriving. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. This afternoon, we're gonna be talking about the future of diversity in small business. My first guest is a key member of the House Small Business Committee, California Democratic Congresswoman Judy Chu. Representative Chu, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me. Many businesses suffered during the pandemic, but I'd like you to talk a little bit about the impact on small businesses and particularly minority-owned small businesses, which I think were particularly hard hit. Yes, many minority small businesses were indeed very hard hit. They did not have the same access to resources that others did. And as a result, it was harder for them to be able to know where to go, and what to do. Now, um, I have uh, many Asian-owned businesses in my district, uh, along with other minority businesses. Nonetheless, because of the misinformation and xenophobia coming from the coronavirus, the Asian-owned businesses were especially hard hit by rumors and um, uh, the kinds of uh, shunning that uh, was occurring due to the pandemic. And uh, some of them closed very early on, uh, suffering uh, financially and, of course, suffering in terms of jobs lost. But actually, it was also the minority small businesses that really had a hard time. And so this is why we were so alarmed when we did the Paycheck Protection Program, many millions of dollars that were supposed to be dispensed. But the big banks instead turned to their largest customers to give those loans. And as a result, we had situations where $20 million was being given to a publicly traded company like Ruth Chris. But small businesses, and especially minority small business, were shunned, even though they may have been a customer of say Bank of America or Wells Fargo for 20 years, if they didn't have a big loan with those big banks, they could not get a PPP loan. As a result, so many of us, including myself, got tons of calls 
from minority small businesses who couldn't get through, didn't know where to go, um, and were without resources for those small business loans. So this is why we then created a set-aside, a PPP set-aside for the community banks, the credit unions, and the community financial institutions to be able to lend to those underserved businesses, women, veterans, uh, businesses of color, so that they could have the access to PPP loans that they needed. Representative Chu, I'd like you to I'd like to bring you back. That's interesting. Onto the um, impact of these racist attacks, you're a member of the uh, Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. Um, what was the impact in neighborhoods? How were Asian Americans managing who were running small businesses, and what was the impact on their neighborhoods at that time? When coronavirus first started, uh, there were very heavy uh, rumors uh, and misinformation that was being spread that uh, there was coronavirus uh, emanating from those businesses. And as a result, uh, some businesses were targeted with horrendous flyers and social media. Uh, it uh, uh, was telling people to stay away from these businesses. Uh, so they really suffered and, and some of them did indeed close down. And then um, uh, President Trump started calling the virus China virus, Wuhan virus, and Kung flu. Uh, and as a result, um, there were hate crimes and hate incidents uh, against the small business as well as just Asian Americans that were on the streets. As of now, there are 7,500 anti-Asian hate crimes and incidents that have taken place across America. And actually, I think that's an even an undercount um, because a collection of data on hate crimes is, is very flawed in this country. Nonetheless, we started our own uh, hate crime collecting site and found that there were many thousands of these hate crimes and incidents that were affecting the community as a whole. Uh, so many of them being reported on a daily basis that the Asian Americans started wondering, Will I be next? So let's think back a little bit before the pandemic. Um, you've been an advocate for small businesses before then, including advocating for a permanent community advantage loan program. Can you tell me exactly how that program works? So there are so many minority small business owners that get turned down by a traditional bank. Uh, they may not have the credit history. Uh, they may not have the language facility. But for whatever reason, they get turned down. Um, and they may get turned down from an SBA loan, the 7A uh, SBA loan, which is very, very popular. Um, so the Community Advantage Program was started as a pilot program uh, and has been operating since 2011 to be able to give those who might not fit the traditional profile for a loan to be able to get a loan. For instance, someone like Colin Fung, who testified at one of my hearings, talked about um, starting a restaurant, a ramen shop actually, and then wanted to expand. He went to a traditional bank, but he couldn't get anywhere because he had no credit history in this country. He also had limited English proficiency and, um, 
uh, he needed to talk to somebody who could talk him through the process uh, in his own language. So he went to a community financial institution called PACE, the Pacific Asian Consortium in Employment, and they were able to get him a community advantage loan of $60,000. And that made all the difference in the world. He actually has now expanded his ramen business to three shops. So he has three restaurants um, that are ramen businesses. It's wonderful to hear success stories. I'd love you to talk to me a little bit about the role that the private sector can play here in helping small businesses. Uh, what, what is the function? What's the role? Do you see success stories there? Oh, of course. We have such incredible programs like Community Advantage, like our SBA programs. Um, and we want our financial institutions to participate in those programs. But this goes to exactly why I have a bill to make community advantage permanent because I have talked to financial institutions and they say, well, this is something we want to do, but we want to make sure that if we set up such a program in our bank, that this program is around to stay. So it being a, a pilot program that has to be renewed every, every few years uh, makes them feel uh feel insecure about uh, starting such a thing. That's why I have this bill to make the program permanent and also make other improvements in the program. So yes, there are so many ways in which um, our financial institutions at the private sector could help in making sure that there is outreach to minority small businesses uh, and in fact, let me tell you that the American Rescue Plan also created the Community Navigators Program so that um, there could be proactive outreach to minority businesses so that they could be directed in the best ways for them to get the financial help that they need. So yes, the private sector could participate in that as well. And what you're talking about as well, you're embracing as part of the infrastructure program that is being uh, that is moving through at the moment. Is that correct? Well, the Community Navigators Program actually was passed in the American Rescue Plan. Okay. So it's available even now. However, I do have to say that the infrastructure uh, bill, the American Jobs Plan that President Biden is proposing, uh, actually has more for minority small businesses. For instance, grants that would be administered through the Minority Business Development um, Agency, MBDA, but also $5 billion for startups for the small business investment programs that uh, could help new businesses, which we know will be uh, plentiful as people start to get to the realization that this may be the time to start the new small business that they've always wanted to, or maybe their small business closed during the pandemic and they have to come up with a new idea that will be successful. So yes, that's what we believe should be integral to any infrastructure package that comes forth now. You spoke about PPP. Do you believe there is need for greater oversight to make sure that money goes to the right people? Yes, uh, there definitely needs to be greater oversight. One very, very disappointing thing was that um, 
the SBA did not require that the institutions uh, say whether uh, the uh, business was a, a business of color, a minority business that is, a woman or a veteran. And since that was not implemented, even though we actually had that requirement in our bill, in our COVID bills, um, as a result, we have lost very, very valuable information as to whether we are really serving the small businesses of need. And so we are trying to make sure that uh, they are indeed served and we can only do that through oversight after the fact. Nonetheless, uh, we're requiring that uh, from here on out that that demographic data is indeed collected, that we have these set-aside programs uh, that will make sure that the smallest of small businesses are indeed served. Actually, I believe that we have had success in just looking at what the average loan amount from PPP is right now, which is $67,000. So the smaller businesses are indeed being given the loans that they need. Uh, nonetheless, we want a more complete picture of what's going on. I'd like to ask you a, a more cultural question about the importance of the success or failure of small businesses in underrepresented communities and sometimes marginalized communities. What does it mean to uh, an underserved community to see a, a small business in them either go ahead or, or drop out of, um, out of business altogether? Oh, well, in my district, uh, there are so many small businesses that uh, are started by immigrants, women, people of color, veterans coming back and just trying to get a foothold into things. But let's just take the case of the immigrant. They come and uh, they know that uh, they can cook food from their native country. So they start a bit business, a restaurant, and when they are able to provide things that um, items that that people enjoy eating uh, and they can provide a place for gathering for people from that country. That is just uh, so unifying for the neighborhood and it it makes people feel that they belong. So yeah, these small businesses become a huge part of that community uh, and can create a neighborly feeling, can create a way for people to communicate with one another to make people feel at home. And so when that small business goes away, it's just like something in your heart goes away. It, it, it leaves a hole in your heart because it has become such a strong part of your everyday life. So what do you say to critics who, who worry that this burst of government spending could actually set back the economic recovery? I think the opposite is true, uh, that we needed to have this infusion of funds in order to make sure that these small businesses could succeed. Uh, and uh, I don't know what we would have done if all these businesses had gone under. I, I can't tell you how many um, small businesses, small business owners have come up to me and told me that they got a PPP loan, that it was the thing that helped make ends meet, 
despite the fact that they lost customers or maybe had to close down completely or had to lay off employees or furlough them. I mean, they, believe me, they have so many heartbreaking stories um, and they had so much worry at the time. They needed these infusion of funds to be able to keep on going. And um, that's why I am so proud that we did have PPP, even though, yeah, there were difficulties at the beginning. This is why I'm also proud that we have the Restaurant Revitalization Fund, as well as the Shuttered Venues Fund. You know that restaurants really suffered during this time period, and uh, they had these terrible restrictions that, well, made them close down and uh, had them uh, only be able to do delivery, of course, Many told me that uh, that really, even though that was good, it didn't make up for the loss of funds from when the restaurant was truly open. So that's why we definitely needed the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. Um, and then on the shuttered venues, uh, we have um, so many uh, wonderful venues like in Los Angeles, the Troubadour, which is of historic significance as a music gathering place. They could not open at all. These are the kinds of venues where you rely on a crowd to come in to listen to music or uh, to witness a, a game or something. And they definitely needed the ability to have funds that could keep them alive so that eventually they could open up again. I don't know what what they would have done, what the restaurants would have done, or any of these small businesses would have done without the infusion of funds that we gave them. Representative Chu, I think I have time for one last question. I'm afraid it has to be a little quick. But you sent a letter to the head of the Small Business Administration and to Secretary, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen highlighting the disparity between the loans to majority white neighborhood businesses and majority white neighborhoods and those in Latino and black areas. What was their response? Uh, we, we didn't get a response. So um, we are still looking forward to the response. Uh, but yes, uh, an LA Times uh, uh, study uh, found that uh, by looking at census tracts that those uh, PPP loans in white areas got twice the number of PPP loans than in Latino areas, 1.5 times the loans in black census tracts and 1.2 times the loans in Asian tracts. So it showed the disparity and we want to make sure that going forward, the disparities no longer exist. That's a wonderful message to leave us with that disparities should no longer exist in the future. Representative Chu, thank you so much for joining us today. That's all we have time for. Thank you. I'll be back in a few moments. Thank you. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Jean Meserve. The death of George Floyd last year in Minneapolis triggered a national reckoning on issues of race, including an examination of economic inequities faced by Black Americans. U.S. Bank is headquartered in Minneapolis and made a commitment to address those economic inequities in Minneapolis and in communities far beyond. Joining me now to discuss is Greg Cunningham, Senior Executive Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer of U.S. Bank. Mr. Cunningham, great to have you with us. Thank you, Jean. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So we're a year in. What impact do you believe your efforts have made? Jean, I believe our um, our efforts have had a, an incredible impact. You know, the the murder of George Floyd here in Minneapolis had a profound impact on our company. Um, his death occurred um, just minutes from our corporate headquarters here in Minneapolis. And personally, um, serving in the role of chief diversity officer, it had a personal impact um, on me, um, uh, having lived here and, and working in Minneapolis. Last year, Gene, we made a commitment to make sure that we were providing access to capital for um, for small businesses. We made a $100 million annual commitment. We felt it was really important that we actually looked at how we could continue to support uh, women and minority-owned businesses. Um, we felt that it was critical that we helped rebuild and restore our communities here in Minneapolis and beyond that were impacted during the civil unrest. And then finally, we made a, a um, a, a huge commitment to ensure that we were providing leadership um, opportunities to our employees. Um, I'm happy to say, Gene, that we've, we've made tremendous progress in all four of those areas, uh, even doubling our commitments in some places, knowing that the work is, is not done, um, but significant progress uh, in allocating all of those resources. We've allocated over $200 million to minority um, and Black-owned small businesses in that time. We've doubled the number of our suppliers um, in our supplier database. Um, we've allocated over $15 million to over 70 nonprofits across the country as part of our rebuild efforts. And we've created leadership development um, programs for our African-American and Hispanic leaders. And we've had several hundred leaders go through those programs to advance leadership in our organization. So a lot has happened in a year, Gene. What challenges and disparities still persist for minority small business owners? Gene, as you know, um, over 40% of Black-owned businesses um, actually had to shutter and close their doors um, in the first two, two months of the pandemic. And what I think is critical to support small businesses right now is to ensure that they have access to capital um, and that they are um, able to tap into the networks that we know are so important um, in business. Um, that they're able to have opportunities to partner not only with large organizations but like U.S. Bank, but that they're able to do meaningful business and so that they are getting contracts and opportunities that allow them to grow and scale and create jobs. We know, Gene, that most people in this country don't work for large companies like U.S. Bank. They work in small businesses. They work in, these, in our communities. And so if we can do meaningful business with these, um, with these small businesses and give them opportunities to grow and scale that we will create um, uh, employment, um, which really leads to vi um, vitality and vibrancy in our communities. Um, and so we've got to make sure that we are providing adequate access to these small businesses, which is why um, our access fund actually is providing over um, $20 million in, in debt financing to community development financial institutions, which will lend to these small businesses, as well as an additional $5 million to our access fund that we are making available via grants to small businesses so that they can build capacity and they can build systems that allow them to network um, and grow their businesses over time. Has U.S. Bank made changes internally to address this moment? We have, Gene. That's a critical part of it. I mean, so much 
of, you know, I talked about a lot of the things that we're doing externally and how we're making capital available. But I think the more fundamental piece, which is why your question is so great, are the changes that we're making to how we think about our business and how we serve communities. Um, we actually implemented a, um, as a, as a part of our diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, we know that having representation of women and people of color in leadership positions and executive positions in our organization are critical. And so we actually implemented the Rooney Rule, which ensures that we have at least one woman or, or one person of color a candidate for every single open role in our organization. We think that that um, casts a broader net. Um, it allows us to sort of um, have a greater candidate pool so that we can ensure that we're hiring the best talent um, in our organization. We had over 300 African-American leaders go through a leadership academy uh, this year, um, over 300 Hispanic leaders who have attended a two days of leadership development training and development and networking uh, that we just did last month. And we're very proud of the second year of our Women's Advancement Initiative, which um, is really about catalyzing uh, women into executive positions in our organization. We think these are foundational elements along with um, how we drive accountability in our organization that will accelerate results. How will you know when you have been successful? You know, Jean, it's, it, uh, this work is, there's never really a destination. I think the journey um, is, is really the, the main part of the story. But what's, what's critical in, in the answer to your question is, is we, we know that we have systems of accountability. And when we have greater representation of women and people of color, not only at the executive levels, um, but on our board of directors, um, and we see equitable distribution and uh, greater representation of that talent across the board at all levels of our organization, we will know that we're making tremendous progress and that will show up in terms of business results in a more profitable organization for us. And we have to leave it there. Greg Cunningham, Senior Executive Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer of U.S. Bank. Thanks so much for joining us. And now back to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to Washington Post Live and our discussion of diversity in small businesses. I'm joined now by two people who want to be part of the solution. Ron Busby is the president of US Black Chambers Incorporated and Lisa Menser is the president of the Opportunity Finance Network. A very warm welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Ron, may I start with you? You have been a personally very successful businessman, growing, I think, from something like 150,000 in revenue to 15 million over 10 years. What do you see as the biggest challenges facing minority-owned businesses right now? When we did a survey of our business, and thank you for having us on this afternoon, we represent 150 chambers across the country in 42 states with a membership base of over 385,000 Black-owned businesses. And when we did a survey of our business members of what their concerns were, uh, if you ask any small business owner, they will say access to capital. But when you say that same question posed to a black business owner, they will say number one, two, and three top concerns are access to affordable and available capital. And so for us, capital is critical. We know that we get half of what we've gone in for and we pay twice the rate for the same uh, dollars that we receive 
uh, as our white peers, everything being equal, credit scores, uh, balance sheets, uh, profitability, uh, even business plans. And so for black owned businesses, particularly in this period of time where we had so many challenges, access to capital is going to be what is needed to kickstart our economy for black business owners. Yeah, those are very striking statistics and bring me right to a question for you, Lisa. Your organization, your network has been around for 40 years, um, but it is all about bringing access to capital. Can you tell me exactly how it works and what you have done? Thank you, and so good to be here. Access to capital is critical, but who your lender is also matters. And that's what this pandemic has showed us. Your lender matters. This pandemic uh, and now the post-pandemic time has put in the spotlight community development financial institutions. Representative Chu spoke about our work and I'm proud to lead a network. We have 350 members of the thousand certified community development financial institutions. Because as Ron has said, it matters the kind of deal you get from your lender. Our community development lenders are lenders with a purpose, with a mission to support small businesses, community facilities, affordable housing, and we want to give a fair deal. And we want to come with capital, but I call it capital plus. Capital plus the supports that can help drive a business. So we're not just there uh, to make a buck, we're also there to make sure that our clients succeed and succeed in some of the lowest income communities in the country. So to me, your lender matters. And that's why it's been so important for a relatively small network of community development financial institutions to be to have some focus and to have bigger partners. I'm hearing this term networking a lot. Um, Ron, your US Black Chambers coordinates with 145 others, I think, across the country. Could you tell me about the significance of that coordination and networking, we might say, um, what you're dealing with and how you help the other ones? Great question. So the US Black Chamber was founded on what we call our five key pillars. Located here in Washington, DC, we understand the importance of being able to have an advocacy voice. And so our pillars are started with advocacy, making sure that we create policy that is favorable to black owned businesses across the country. Our second one, as we've been discussing this morning, is access to capital. We're making sure that it is available, it is affordable, and as has been discussed earlier by Lisa, that we're working with Black-owned institutions as well as neighborhood financial institutions. We know that Black banks and local banks make 70% of their loans to Black-owned businesses and homeowners. And so we have partnered with National Bankers Association as well as CDFIs across the country to make sure that our businesses have access to capital. Our third one is around contracting. And we really look at that from three different vantage points. Where is the federal government spending its money? And we've heard a lot about the trillion dollars uh, stimulus package that happened. We're hearing a lot about the infrastructure bill. We wanna make sure that black businesses are participating in this new economy. Second, where is corporate America spending its money? And most importantly, where are black people spending our dollars? We hear a lot about the trillion dollars that black people have to spend, but usually that's corporate America talking to us saying, how can they get their share of it? We've got to transform that conversation to how can we keep that trillion dollars in our communities to ensure that we have sustainability, entrepreneurial training, and then lastly, chamber development. As we've grown across the country, we understand 
that many of our businesses failed last year during the during the uh, the virus, and many of them were saying the reason why they went out of business is because of the lack of information that they were able to gain, to understand, and to be able to implement in their businesses. And so the U.S. Pipe Chamber works with our chambers across the country to ensure that our business owners, as well as our communities, have resources, relationships to be able to continue to grow and hire from within our community. So Lisa, Ron talked about the, the significance of the pandemic, and you have said that it laid bare inequities you'd already seen in low-income communities. We hear that. We, we know how low-income communities were hard hit by the virus. But can you be specific about what you saw before, what was laid bare, and how you move ahead from that? Yeah. Great. You know, what we know is that capital doesn't spread evenly. And so that's why CDFIs were formed. So I spoke today with one of our members, True Fund, uh, works in New York and five other states in the South. And they were telling me about the kind of clients they support, a black woman owned uh, medical practice that supports kids and families with autism. Now, a practitioner that was sitting in her community couldn't get financing from other sources. So this is what we see and often what they're left with is some fairly rapacious priced capital sometimes from fintechs. Often we come along and finance them out of that kind of capital. Now, this business was it's such a story of resilience because she made it with a CDFI loan from True Fund. She was able to get her cash flows in such a good state she could expand. And then the pandemic hit and you can't provide therapeutic services in place. But the CDFIs were there to pivot, to make sure that they could expand. And this is what I think you've asked about, Francis, about what does recovery look like? We are here to make sure you can persist and then pivot. The persisting were the things we did, the financial first responder role of CDFIs. We got in quickly, sometimes with modifications of loans, with grant resources, and frankly, with those very important PPP loans. That kept people able to persist. Now is the moment, though, for how are we going to thrive into this recovery? And that's where, again, the CDFIs are so important. We come now with follow-up capital, with favorable terms, with an ability to help people on the next iteration of their journey. You know, there were many good things that happened. People took more advantage of social media presence and new technologies. And so we are now positioned to help these businesses into the next segment. I feel like we do not have to give up. There were many businesses shuttered, but what we know is that our communities, black communities, Latino communities, indigenous communities, rural communities, this is where we need our small businesses to thrive. And I think what we know as a field is that we can help those businesses to pivot and to persist. Again, very inspiring. And Ron, tell me what you believe we have seen that you know these promising signs set these promising signs for 20%, I think, of the businesses that shuttered. What do you think they need to take that next step and thrive? It would be great to hear, and we were extremely proud that the President of the United States went to Tulsa, Oklahoma, made the commitment that he was going to increase the spend with black firms from 5% to 15%. We did intentionality. So often when programs are created, to move the black business community forward or black communities forward. It's painted under the broad brush of minority 
program for diversity and inclusion. We're not minorities. We're not many times small business owners. We have specific needs that are different from other communities, other business owners. And so what we are looking for is intentionality when programs are created to ensure that the businesses and the communities that were impacted the most have the first opportunity to be able to participate and succeed. We saw that, and I'm so glad that Lisa brought it up, 70% of black businesses did not get a loan or a payroll protection plan from a, a majority bank. 39% of our businesses either found that uh, they were turned away altogether, 76% of them found that they got either half or far less of what they needed. It is important for us to make sure that when we're talking about a resurgence or a reopening of, of, of Black business of America, that we have intentional programs to ensure that the businesses that were impacted have the opportunity to be able to sustain. Thank you. Lisa, when we talk about these small businesses making it, making it again, making it back, what impact can they have on the larger economy? What's the ripple effect here? I think this is one of the most important questions of our day. This isn't just a, a clever fantasy that we're going to, it's not just cute. These small businesses are fundamental to how our whole economy thrives. Janet Yellen spoke about unlocking the potential. We've got to get all parts of the economy back working. That's what rebuilding looks like. So the job effects, the very business I talked about, you know, kept six uh, jobs open. Those are the ripple effects we need. We need the, the six jobs. We need the sole proprietors to work. And we need the smaller businesses that are bigger employers to also work. But I think the key thing is that this is what unlocking future potential looks like in a very sophisticated economy like the U.S., a lot works, but when we leave behind communities and neighborhoods and tribal areas or rural areas, we're leaving you know, opportunity on the sidelines. And here's where our small businesses need investment. And this is again, why the lender matters and why it's important that we resource the lenders who've been out there fighting for these communities until frankly this pandemic we didn't have a lot of people who knew what the acronym CDFI meant, Community Development Financial Institutions. And now we have the attention. I like Ron's word of intentionality. We've seen intentionality from the federal government, both sides of the aisle, in supporting CDFIs. And frankly, we've seen intentionality from private partners, both banks who've started to partner us with new ways, and also new companies, Google and Twitter, have brought their resources and invested in us and through us. So this is the time, if we want to get this economy rebuilt and to really address the wealth gaps and the deeper inequality that has bedeviled American economy and society for decades, this is a route to doing that. And I think that's what's so important about this moment. We're finally recognizing this. Ron, Lisa's talking about the ripple effects economically. I'd love to have you talk about it culturally. It's a question I asked Representative Chu in a sense. What is the significance of success or failure for small businesses, which are often in underrepresented or marginalized communities? So many of our businesses are the core of their communities. Although we have 2.6 million Black-owned businesses around the country, 
2.5 million have no employees. And so when you have a program created called the Payroll Protection Plan, it really wasn't created for the black business community. So our culture felt like, gosh, it was a trifecta impact. We saw that the virus impacted our communities more so than any others and more black people died and were impacted at the same time were called essential workers. So that was the first leg of the trifecta. The second one was the stimulus package itself that did not hit our communities. And when you have a program that's supposed to be able to move and jumpstart our businesses that takes out consideration 99% of our firms, it left us in a very peculiar situation of not being able to continue to grow our businesses. And then the third, which all we saw, was the murder of George Floyd. And so for our culture, it was a very challenging time. When we surveyed our members, 50% of them are still concerned about having access to capital to be able to grow, to reopen, and to be able to get back in business. But we, as a community, as been stated before, are a very resilient community. We understand the importance of making sure that we're being creative. And so you see businesses now that are reopening using technology. And most importantly, what we're now seeing is the resurgence of the black dollar. Many corporations, as well as black Americans are saying, we wanna make sure that we're supporting black owned businesses. And it has been a very difficult opportunity in the past because most of our businesses weren't certified as black owned. They were certified as minority-owned businesses. And so the U.S. Black Chamber created the only certification program for many businesses around the country that aren't going to do business with the federal government and aren't large enough to do business with many of the corporations that historically have allowed certification programs. So for Black-owned businesses and Black consumers, you can find where we are at byblack.us. Again, byblack.us will allow us to make sure that they're certified, that they're validated, that they are who they say they are, that 51% own, and that we can find them so that we can support them so that we can grow our communities as well. Lisa, I think we have probably time for a last question with you, and that is about keeping hope alive. Um, you've talked, both talked about resilience, but how do you sustain that feeling after what people have been through? Yeah. It's one of the reasons our CDFIs, I think, invest in small businesses. You can't look at an entrepreneur who comes to you with a business plan and not see the hope. This is all about investing in hope. And it's all about investing in second chances and people who have been incarcerated in the past, people who have been veterans, people who've been immigrants, people who are starting, mothers coming out of home life. They're starting businesses for a reason. This is one of the most American things I think we could do is to support the energy of entrepreneurs. And I think what it takes is a lender who will go the second mile with a, with a business owner. And that's our CDFIs. We will listen, we will give you a fair deal. We will come with our capital and our business uh, supports so that you can succeed through the many iterations. I know this about our 350 members. I know this about this field. And my sense of hope is that when a small set of institutions can get some very big partners, frankly, this administration, the Secretary of the Treasury, and new corporate partners, I feel hopeful that we won't waste this crisis and we will use it to come up with systems that are smarter and better to get the capital 
flowing in a fairer and more just way. And that's, that's what gives me hope. Ron Busby and Lisa Mensa, I love uh, finishing that with a message of hope. Thank you both very much for joining us. I'm Francis Steed Sellers again. We have many exciting programs coming up. You can check out the details on WashingtonPostLive.com. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.